May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always and everywhere acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The message of Scripture and the message of John's Gospel in particular is that God loves us more than we love ourselves and that we are meant for glory. But that love is of a particular kind, as John notes, it is an intimacy and knowledge known preeminently to the Father and Son. And it is an intimacy and love which can only be known by what John calls indwelling. That intimate state of existence that is marked by oneness with the Son. That is why John uses the images like the vine. And that is why his gospel is filled with allusions to the sacraments. If we imagine that love can be given full expression apart from Christ, if we mistake our feeble attempts to express it for the fullness of love found in him, then we have much to learn yet about the Christian faith. The Christian journey is not about getting our passport to heaven and then being a good, loving person in some innocuous, well-meaning, vanilla sense of the word. It is about dying and rising with him in baptism to be led into a life that continues to plunge the depths of God's fierce love which heals and restores the lost to the purposes of their lives. That is a love that we will never comprehend in this life, but it is the spiritual journey into which we are invited. By God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, God peels away layer after layer of cruelty, pettiness, and selfishness. But the Spirit also leads us into a larger and larger understanding of God's love. It is what Maximus the Confessor described as sober 
inebriation. And it led the church to reach out around the world in the embrace of divine love, building churches, monasteries, schools, universities, hospitals, and orphanages, breaking down barriers between the clean and the unclean, between men and women, between races and classes, between the rich and the poor, and between warring nations. It led the fight against slavery, and it created a global culture that however imperfectly talks about the self-evident rights and dignity of every human being, it nonetheless has been shaped by the convictions of the church. But, if that relationship is about a love that leads us into glory, then imagine what horrors can be committed by walking away from that love. If that love can transform the world, its absence, which is what the church calls evil, can then plunge us into just as much darkness. It is that kind of darkness that has been on display over the last two weeks in Buffalo, in Los Angeles, and in Uvalde. The deaths, the waste, the obscenity, the pain, the grief that follows in its wake. And we should name it for the evil that it is. There are those who will not agree. They will argue that there is no God and that therefore there is no such thing as evil. That the choices that we make are thoroughly determined by sociological and psychological factors. But such thinking has left us without the vocabulary to name what is happening around us and in our hearts. And as a result, in the wake of every tragedy now, leaders of all kinds, including far too many clergy, is this. I can't understand why this happened. Or words to that effect. And it is that inability to name evil that has left us powerless and befuddled in the face of evil deeds. This does not mean that we cannot learn from sociologists and psychologists. It is worth naming the sociological and psychological factors that exacerbate evil, that aid and abet it. To argue that certain acts are inherently evil is not about denying the factors that multiply its impact. Nor is the church's conversation about evil about refusing to consider the concrete steps that we can take to ameliorate the impact of evil deeds on the world around us. Church leaders, Christians in pews everywhere, led by sober inebriation of Christ's love, participated in the civil rights movement and helped to create legislation that made it harder to spread hate 
and discrimination. But it is dangerous to assume that evil choices are reducible to a series of environmental factors that make people do things. It is childish also to think of evil as some sort of possession that overcomes people without antecedents and connections to the rest of their life. Jesus takes on human flesh because it is in and through human flesh that the power of evil and death exercises its influence over the world. That is why Hannah Arendt, having lived through the Holocaust, could talk about the banality of evil. Demon possession is the language that we use to describe someone who is inhabited by nihilism and the desire to destroy life. And that is what we have seen over the last two weeks. And that is also why the church must persist in naming evil. It is rare that evil is clothed in horns and a tail. More often than not, it looks like every other human being. And failing to name it as evil dulls our moral senses. What else can we do? I won't spend much time arguing that we can support a variety of efforts that have been explored on the Internet. I do have to say that after several days of following the conversation around events in Uvalde that I'm stunned by the conversation about this problem that is so mired in ideological approaches to it that we can't take a divergent, complex approach to the problem that deals with three basic elements that we need to take into account. The perpetrator, the weapon, and his victims. That analysis alone clearly suggests that no single solution will suffice. To be sure, there should be gun laws and new provisions. Long term, it will involve addressing factors that contribute to the complex mix of social, psychological, and familial factors that create the kind of violent ideology that prompts people to commit crimes of this kind. And because none of those efforts will have immediate effect, we also need to secure and protect our schools. If the average citizen like you and me can do anything to contribute to a solution, it will be the calm, steady, firm insistence that our representatives work to solve this problem in a way that is concrete, likely to succeed, and shaped by a commitment to a viable solution. We can also prompt our own communities and schools to begin a conversation about what more can be done to protect our children. But as a church, there is also a larger task that we can embrace. 
the loving oneness which we have been given in Christ is not a private grant. It cannot be expressed in isolation. It cannot be expressed within the walls of this building alone. The unity of the church as it is expressed in the love of Christ is meant to serve not just as a witness to the reign of God, but as the leading edge of a new reality that love makes possible. And that role is our role. That role has been the mission of the church from the beginning. But today, it not only continues to be central to our lives in theological and spiritual terms, it has become critical to the well-being of our communities. And it needs to find expression outside our walls. More often than not, and we know this, the modern suburb, and for that matter, the modern American city, is no longer a true community. We do not know most of our neighbors, let alone a significant number of people who live in our towns and communities. We do not shop for groceries in the same place. We do not walk the same streets. We do not visit the same post office if we visit it at all. Instead, we work long hours, pull our cars into the garage, and withdraw behind closed doors. And evil plainly thrives in disconnected communities where families are unknown to one another, where informal support systems are threadbare if they exist at all, and where people are often left to navigate misfortune in isolation. There are many ways in which we might address the events of the last week, and we should. But none of these measures will mean very much, much in a world without a lived witness to the power of God's love. As important as civil rights legislation and the civil rights movement was, it did not vanquish racism. As important as gun legislation is, it will not vanquish the kind of darkness that led to the events of the last two weeks. That darkness, enabled or not, will continue to grow in the absence of a witness to love. My friends, if you are truly anguished and angry, about the events of the last two weeks. Then volunteer to help us discern a way in which to reach out to our community. To get our hands dirty, as the expression goes, in addressing the despair and anger that creates the horrors we have witnessed. To identify ways in which we can address the brokenness and the isolation in our community in ways that don't simply deal with structural problems that promote violence, but speak as well to the darkness in our hearts. Because if thoughts and prayers are not enough, then neither is pass a law so I can get over being angry and go back to my life.
because if the power of evil thrives in the absence of God's love, then it is also true that the embodied love of Christ is ultimately the ultimate antidote to evil. Let us pray. Gracious and loving Lord, you poured out your life, the life that you shared with the Father in a sacrifice of love. And in our baptism, we were buried and raised to new life in your crucifixion and resurrection. You have given the mission of forging bonds of love and care to your church. Bonds of love and care that witness to the possibility of new intimacy, new life, and the hope of healing. Use us, we pray, to frustrate the power of evil and to nurture the reign of your love. All this we pray in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who with you and the Holy Spirit reign one God now and forever. Amen.